Hi folks and welcome to the latest episode of Plastic Grass Square. I'm your host Aaron Lucas and this time around we're chatting to Sarah McCarthy. She has a background as a psychologist and has spent a lot of time working in uh, diversity and inclusivity for marginalised communities. Let's join Sarah in conversation, shall we? Sarah, good afternoon. How are you? I'm fab. How are you? Uh, great. Thank you for asking. Just great. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, welcome to Plastic Grass Square. Um, this is the first podcast you've ever appeared on, I believe. It is my very first. How exciting. Um, so let's get started. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your work background, um, how you've sort of arrived at where you are today? Oh, my work background. Okay, it's been pretty. It's been pretty sort of diverse. It wasn't a straight pathway. So I, I studied psychology at uni, and my goal was to be a psychologist when I grow up. That was my plan, um, and I still may keep that in my back pocket as a bit of an option. But ever since I was young, I've always been fascinated by understanding why people do what they do and what makes people tick. And I remember one of my very first memories was my dad asking, why do you ask why so much? Because I was so intrigued by why everything happened. So that's kind of how I ended up at uni studying psych. And my first proper real job was working in an outreach mental health program at a not-for-profit. And that first year completely changed kind of the pathway of, of my career for a few reasons. But one of the main reasons was that I found that the industry around uh, people living with a mental illness was very deficit focused and I realised mm-hmm. that, that I, I didn't think that was the best way to support people and in that program it was focused on a strengths based approach, person centred kind of delivery, understanding that mental illness was one part of who they were um, and that kind of really shifted my perspective as well as luckily enough reporting to a leader who was quite incredible and kind of shifted my career in a number of ways and I found that I really enjoyed leadership and understanding how to use my powers for good Mm -hmm. um, and helping people really enjoy the work that they do day to day. So that kind of really shifted my approach and I ended up moving into um, business consultancy, leadership development and coaching which I I love and that sort of led me to where I am now which is working in an organisation that makes uh, spaces safer and more inclusive for marginalised communities and specifically my role is working with health services to make mm. their services more inclusive of those marginalised groups. Excellent. So it sounds like um, early on in your career you had a, a quite a strong mentor mm. and that was a really satisfying experience for you. Definitely, yeah. And to be honest, I think he actually ruined me for all leaders to come. (laughs) All managers have sort of paled in comparison since then. So he was just a very kind of natural leader, naturally uh, had great natural coaching ability as well. And that was something I'd never really had words or language for. But I think I sort of naturally um, fit into that sort of approach as well. So he just, he saw something in me that I hadn't seen in myself yet. He saw something in all of the staff within the team in terms of seeing what their unique strengths were and just found a way to really harness them. Mm. Um, and it just really kind of brought the team to life. And I thought it was magical and amazing because oftentimes there's an assumption, I think particularly in Western 
um, society that we should rock up to work on a Monday morning, hate our jobs and just hate life in general. And I just don't think that's the way it has to be. So if you can find some magic in your everyday by reflecting, understanding who you are, what you bring, what your strengths are mm. and how you can make the most of those in your role, it can just entirely shift not only your experience in nine to five work but also in your relationships and your broader life as well so it really not only changed my career but kind of changed my life a little bit oh excellent mm. it's it's really nice when that happens in your workspace as well because i mean like you say there is that that idea that permeates western society mm. where you know like we're not supposed to enjoy what we do nine to five mm. but really there's you know like um, until someone gives us a fundamental answer for the reasons of our existence which Quite frankly, I don't think it's going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. Um, but, you know, like, w w the, the only thing that I can think that existence is for, for argument's sake, is to be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And that means finding that magic, like you say, and, and, and making sure that everything that you do brings you some kind of joy or pleasure or excitement and almost, I guess, putting yourself at the middle of things mm -hmm. so that you can enjoy them. Totally. Mm. And, and finding that connection and meaning, both taking meaning, but also giving meaning to others. Yeah. If that's all we can contribute in our life, then I think that's a life well lived. And in a lot of ways, that sort of contributed to how I've ended up where I am, not only doing coaching work, but also working with marginalised communities who traditionally might find it more difficult to connect with you know, the majority or the, the traditional way of working. So that's kind of led me to, to where I am in a number of ways. Nice. Yeah. Um, so you've been, um, uh, you've been doing some, uh, running some mentoring programs uh, of late, if my memory serves correctly, like um, some leadership activities and um, mentoring days. Um, how, is that just been like a natural sort of growth or you like, right, I had this amazing experience, I need to replicate it for as many people as I possibly can or... Mm. A bit of both. So definitely my experience played out in that and I, I remembered how powerful it was for me to have someone like that in my life um, and how I found that you can have various mentors throughout your life in a myriad of different capacities without it necessarily being a formalised relationship. Mm -hmm. So I guess the way that the, the, the way that I got to the place that I'm in right now in terms of making those offerings is... They're specifically for women and specifically for LGBTIQ women. So women who have diverse sexual orientations or gender identities or have an intersex status. Um, because what we've found in terms of the work that I've done in corporate spaces in the last couple of years is that not only are non-LGBTI women underrepresented in leadership positions and more broadly in positions of um, power within organisations, but LGBTIQ women are even far less represented in those positions of leadership, but also within LGBTI reference groups, which are meant to be places of support for this community, which are often quite heavily populated by gay men and straight women, which is great, but they're not necessarily catering to a large cohort of our community. Mm -hmm. So. What I did was partner with uh, a friend of mine who, who works with a volunteer organisation who focuses on providing mentoring opportunities to young LGBTI people. And with our powers combined, we wanted to basically create an event that engaged LGBTIQ women and brought them to the forefront. Uh, there's been very little research in this space to understand why women are underrepresented, but there's a lot of stereotypes and assumptions behind that, one of which is women don't want these events, they're busy... Uh, at home with their families, therefore they don't want them after 5pm. Some research actually came out of the UK to suggest that women want earlier events because they have families. So I'm sure we could spend an entire podcast discussion on dissecting that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but essentially what we wanted to do was kind of 
provide a space, a safe space for women to come to the forefront, meet other women, formulate some of these mentoring relationships, both in an official and unofficial capacity. So we brought together an event that kind of deconstructed the traditional networking event, which was you waltz into a room with a champagne and a canapé and hope for the best. Careful which, business cards. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. Which traditionally hadn't attracted a lot of women. And instead what we did was we uh, we created a panel, which is sort of a traditional format, but we ensured that that panel was three sets of pairs of women that were already in mentoring relationships and had come to that mentoring relationship from a variety of different pathways mm. to show the different ways that that could happen. And we tried to represent different cultural backgrounds, different gender identities as well. So we had someone who was um, non-binary, someone who was from an Indian background, someone who was corporate. We had a trans woman as well. We, we tried to get that representation there. And essentially we just talk to them about their experiences of um, seeking out a mentoring relationship, um, their hesitations in um, identifying as a mentor because we know that's a a challenge for some women as well. Uh, We also ensured that on the night we offered an opportunity for women to win a mentoring session. So we profiled 16 diverse mentors within the community who were willing to offer an hour session. Uh, and a number of other aspects as well. So we really didn't know how it would go. We thought it could all fall to death on the floor. Um, (laughs) But instead what happened was from the moment we released it, it was um, 50% sold out within that afternoon. Wow. It was sold out and had a wait list within five days. Um, Before the doors opened, the room was 50% full. Uh, And by the time the room was full, there was probably a small handful of male allies there, but the majority were women. I have never seen so many queer women in one space at one time. And we just got some really great feedback. Um, 78% of those women said they'd be more likely to seek a mentor as a result. Um, and we then replicated that mentor, uh, that event in Melbourne as well. And we even had the Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality, Ro Allen, speak, who just provided some incredible insights. And my key takeaway from that was that it doesn't matter how you get a seat at the table. Uh, it's what got you there. And you have an obligation to open the door for someone else. And I think that is the guiding principle for the work that we do in these mentoring events is mm. if you've had the privilege to get to a particular space, how can you pass it on, yeah. whether that be in an official or unofficial capacity? Yeah. So, I mean like hearing hearing how that that those events developed it's it's like a really it's a really typical case for us in experience design in particular where mm. we're not the user mm. you know we're not the people who need this this service or this activity or whatever it might be so you need to either find some research um, sounds like there was a little bit that you got out of the UK or just try mm. yeah. yeah and and see what happens yeah yeah. Absolutely. I think you're right. And and putting the user at the centre of that experience is really, in my mind, the only way to ensure that it's delivered in a way that's relevant and sustainable for that group of people. Mm-hmm. Because what happens otherwise is we engineer an event that we think will work based on systems and frameworks and what we think should meet a need rather than putting ourselves in the shoes of the service user which means we're more emotionally connected to that experience we understand their unique challenges and their needs as well Uh, and I think that's what really drives an effective kind of event product initiative program whatever it might be I mean human-centered design exists in so many of these different aspects Mm. yeah People first, always people first. Yeah. Um, so uh, you've been working um, uh, with uh, you know some business and service providers and, and uh, different organisations like that. How how is the Australian business sector and, and services sector going in terms of making safe uh, making spaces inclusive and diverse? Is 
Like, is it going all right <laughs> or is it going really terribly or somewhere in the middle? It's, uh, it's definitely improved a lot from where it was. So to think back five or ten years ago when inclusion of marginalised groups in a work context wouldn't have even been a conversation that was on the table, having a diversity and inclusion role within an organisation would be either unheard of or sort of uncommon, but it's now at the forefront. It's part of the conversation. It's something that's considered a business imperative. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it, it's definitely uh, improved. But what's most important for those organisations, I think, is finding their particular why. So, of course, it's difficult to cater to every individual unique kind of identity. And there's so many marginalised groups and so many different identities, particularly in the current Australian context. It's difficult to choose those and cater to each of those individually. Mm -hmm. So for organisations, it's important to find three or four particular focus areas, one of which currently, um, I would say, most commonly is gender, the gender piece. Um, and... Uh, creating safer spaces for Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples as well um, and LGBTIQ and uh, disability and able access as well. So I think mm. they're probably the four most common. Uh, so it's definitely improved, but it's important that businesses find their why but also communicate that to staff rather than it being a top-down approach. It really needs to be top-down and bottom-up. You need that groundswell, that group of interested folks, those comrades or champions or allies that will do that kind of work and drive it from the ground up. Mm. Because something that's delivered from peers or those close to you or those you respect probably is going to have more weight than it would necessarily have coming from a business imperative alone. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's that thing you can't really, you can't expect cultural change within any organisation mm. to be a memo from the top. It's just not going to work. That's right. You have to have buy-in from, mm. from all parts of the business or at least from a little hero crew mm -hmm. um, that can help sort of edu spread the ed education and spread the right messages and make sure that as you say their their colleagues and their you know uh, partners at work mm. have are, are getting the right message and starting to move that through properly yeah absolutely mm. I think one of the best ways to do that from the outset is ask those people who will be affected and this is it's such a core step of human-centered design and it's such a it, it's it seems like such a simple um, component but I think it really is the first step in making sure services or products or whatever it might be is catered to the user so oftentimes when we work with organizations what we hear is things like you know we are inclusive or we don't turn anyone away we are a really great culture uh, oftentimes though what that statement actually means is that we're accepting so we would never turn someone away but we wouldn't necessarily welcome them in with open arms either mm. and because marginalized groups and and particular groups of people who have experienced oppression throughout their lifetime um, their assumption is exclusion unless inclusion is explicit because that is what they've experienced from systems and from legislation and workplaces in the past. So it's important that that, that inclusion is actually proactive and behavioural and measurable. But to do that, first of all, we really need to ask the people that are being impacted rather than saying we are accepting. My question to that is how do you know and have you asked? Yeah. And have you asked how you could do better? Yeah, and, what, and, and once you've asked those questions, what have you what have you done with the with the knowledge? Mm. You know, there's plenty plenty of examples, and I, I know you and I have talked about it in the past, and I shout about it quite a lot. <laughs> when you know, there's this, the simple the simple fact of having to fill out a form, which collects gender data, mm. which is potential nine times out of ten is irrelevant to the form itself, 
but then also only provides you with a binary option. Mm. So what what is the what well, you know if it's part of an onboarding process for a new staff member, what why do you even need to know that in the first place? Mm. Um, if you do need to know it, then you need to provide the right kind of options, and that's part of that difference, really, isn't it, between saying, oh yeah, we're inclusive, mm. and giving yourself a thumbs up and a pat on the back, and then actually taking some steps to do something about it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And the data collection piece is it's very interesting because it seems like such a simplistic black and white place to start, but in fact it's one of the most complex. Uh, and generally the question around gender or any other questions are asked because that's what we've always done, so that's what we'll continue to do without ever stopping and reflecting on why are we asking about this information and if we figure that out how are we communicating that to our service users mm -hmm. and if we are communicating it to them then how do we manage that data we collect who do we share it with how do we make sure that data is used to better the services that we provide rather than it being just popped in a you know a filing cabinet in some back room with absolutely no relevance whatsoever mm. yeah there's no there's no point in gathering data that you're not going to use. Mm. Um, it's just a waste of everyone's time and potentially upsetting to someone as well, which is... Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's, you know, there's been a bit of um, kerfuffle this week, the week that we're doing this recording, where uh, the federal government's decided it's going to roll out an e-health record for everyone, which mm. we kind of all known was going to happen. Yeah. Um, but their story that they're telling um, the Australian public about who's going to have access to that data is not very good. Mm. Um, and further to that, their, their um, you know, decision is not, a, it's not an opt-in. You don't get to choose whether you have one or not. You have mm. to tell the government that you don't want one, yeah. which is like, that's a pretty poor sort of action in terms of, of data gathering, like, we're, like mm. we're saying. It's pretty scary. That's one of the ways that I think data feels like it's heading in the right direction in terms of how we use technology and how we ensure that it impacts our experience in a positive way. It seems like it's heading in the right direction, mm. but in actual fact there's some really archaic elements within that collection process, how it's communicated to consumers, why it's being done, will it be used to actually disadvantage particular groups, especially minority groups or mm. particular groups of people who might be seen as some kind of a risk, whether that be a health risk or a risk to the security of the nation or you know whatever it might be uh, and this will be really relevant to the work we do for health and well-being services as well where they'll be in a position to have to use the the my health records and have to advocate for that whether they necessarily see it as a, as a positive or not so it can be pretty scary mm. uh, and I think for those organizations that have an opportunity to cater uh, the data collection that they use to their service users, the very first thing I'd recommend they do is ask themselves for every single question on that form, why are we asking this and do we need it? Mm. And if we do need it, we need to make sure that it's being communicated in a way that suggests that it is to ensure the service that's provided is better for the consumer, more customised, more relevant to their needs and ensure that the confidentiality around that and who will get that information and when is shared at the outset so that the control and the autonomy is always in the service user's hands mm. so that they know that that data, if it's misused in whatever particular way, that they have the autonomy to hold that system accountable, which I think is absolutely imperative, for mm. particularly when working with marginalised communities who are used to being taken advantage of. We want to ensure that the autonomy and the power and control is in their hands to receive the support that works for them and make sure that any information they offer about themselves, um, it's done in a way that makes them feel comfortable, that positively impacts the service they're receiving. Yeah, so um, 
like you said before, you know, marginalised communities, unfortunately, their assumption is that people are going to treat them badly. Mm. That, that's the, the kind of baseline position that a lot of people come from. Yeah. So, especially when... It... An entirely different perspective to what a senior leader or someone who works in the frameworks or the systems end of the organisation... So to get that buy-in, as you mentioned before, which is absolutely imperative, mm. we need to make sure that the way that that's communicated is it's done in a way that makes sense to those who are providing the service and it's done in a way that puts the consumer at the absolute forefront of the experience. So what I did when I designed this, project, uh, this program was instead of replicating what's already been done around changing this system, this framework, this process, implement this training, very much back-end frameworks, delivery mm -hmm. um, what I did instead was think okay what would this be like if I was a service user what would be every single touch point that I would have with an organization that could or couldn't be inclusive and I sat down and I drew out a physical a physical map of all of the different aspects that I would encounter throughout my experience now when a service user and this can this can be relevant for a service or a program or a product or whatever it might be. Mm. When a service user has their initial interaction with a service, that service might not even know about them yet. So their first interaction is hearing about the service or the program, um, doing their research, hearing about it through a friend, um, looking them up on, on a web page, for example. It's their very first interaction. So there's an opportunity to communicate inclusiveness. Mm. The next step might be their first conversation with the service. So that's when the service actually knows about the potential consumer. Um, all the way through to their initial intake, what kinds of questions are asked, which comes back to the data collection element that we talked about, yeah. um, how that data is managed confidentially. Uh, then if that service user is referred to other services or other programs, how can you hold those accountable, those services accountable to the same level of inclusion that you have? How can you ensure that every conversation that that service user has throughout that process is consistent based on language and training and enablement of those staff? Um, and then running alongside that whole process should be an opportunity for the service user to provide feedback and collaborate um, and take part in a, an iterative process to mm. make sure that that program or that service is evolving with the needs of that consumer. And then all the way through to the end when they're potentially spat out the other end or they, you know, <laughs> or they... they um, they graduate from the service or they no longer require it or whatever, whatever it might be. So we came up with sort of 10 or so different steps and behind each of those steps would be a suite of different offerings and different steps, which might be training for staff, reviewing policies and procedures, um, looking at frameworks, looking at the technology behind it. So it does seem like 10 simple steps, but behind that there's a series of responsibilities and accountabilities that kind of come with that. Oh, wow. That's quite the complex journey map that you've mm -hmm. had to build yeah. to achieve that. And it's, um, it's, it's interesting, there's um, uh, Crystal Higgins who uh, presented at UX London uh, earlier in the year and also uh, was uh, going to talk at Enterprise UX uh, here in Sydney last week, talks about um, onboarding for the long haul and how mm. when, you, when you onboard a, a customer or a user or a service user or whatever they might be, how a lot of the time it be, it's like a one and done um, activity for a lot of organizations but it's really not mm. and that's almost exactly what you're saying is that like you know you bring the user into the into the service but you have to keep checking with them and making sure that everything's going okay and that like they're, pro they're progressing through the steps of what that service offers totally. properly and are constantly being provided that opportunity to to give feedback and you know stay engaged and 
a nice big warm hug, I guess, the whole way along, <laughs> which is, you know, um, an important part of, I think, of, of having empathy for, for users is, is to make sure that you're asking them the right questions mm. the whole time. For sure. Mm. And I think it's really important to keep in mind throughout that whole process, and this is a really um, pertinent term in, in mental health, but it's nothing about us without us. And there's often this assumption that if we are the service provider or the creator of content or a program or whatever it might be, that we are the experts in that. But in actual fact, the service user is the expert in their own lived experience and they know what they need. Um, and when it comes down to marginalised communities, for example, we can often disempower them um, and see them as not capable of making particular decisions, but in actual fact, they're the ones who have lived with this their whole life. They understand what it's like, what they need, what they don't need, and their voices are incredibly important. Mm. Not only important to make sure the service is shaped to suit them, but from a you know a, a, a brand perspective and a, um, a consumer kind of um, engagement perspective, if we want to keep them engaged with the work that we do, it's absolutely imperative that we do that. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That sounds um, that sounds pretty exciting. How did you like? Is that sort of the first? I mean, that's you know probably without you knowing that is something that I would consider to be you know it's a bit of a service design piece. You've done some customer journey mapping. Well, some is an understatement by the sounds of things. <laughs> um, but how did you, so? How did you find the process? And was it something that you just kind of like um, spat out of your head, um, or you had some tools that you'd sort of learnt um, through through your career that you were able to apply or were you just sort of doing what made sense? It's a really good question. I think a, a lot of the process was probably more informed than I think it was. At the time when I sat down and did it, I yep. really, I really try, I'm such an overthinker and a perfectionist, so I actually tried to step away from that approach and just sit down and think, what would I want if I was this person? What would this experience feel like? How do I make it feel the most connected, the most catered to me? Um, from, from that person's perspective. Mm -hmm. So I actually tried to let go of as much as I could. But once I reflected on it, and you know, you and I had a recent conversation about that, I realised how many kind of systems and frameworks and perspectives actually went into that approach. Uh, and I'm a really big fan of Simon Sinek's Start With Why. Such a big fan of yeah. that approach. And I think it's, it's incredibly important for businesses to use that with this kind of design approach as well. Um, I'm also a big fan of human-centered design approaches and making sure the service user is at the center. So I think there were a lot of process that, processes that went into this. But at the beginning, I tried to just drop all my tools and basically just start out with some textures and see how it felt. And as I had some discussions with others and as I built it, I found that it was... Um, I found that it was actually probably more created based on research and frameworks than I even really kind of realised. Because mm. mm. you just, you had, yeah, it was, it was stuff that you had access to, knowledge that you had, um, and being research-based because, I mean, you know, in, in particular, I know, I know for us when, you know, when we're, we're looking at making at redesigning services or, or whatever it might be, like, you know, evidence-based design for us is, mm. is super important and, and, you know, finding that empathy with the user, gaining their insight and, and gaining their insight through research, mm -hmm. um, whether that's pre-existing research or, or specific research that you conduct for the activity, yeah. um, it's, it's really powerful. Um, and I also, one of the other things that I really like about that sort of evidence-based evidence design process is that it's uh, when you are going to the top end of an organisation, 
um, and they're very process driven and framework driven. They're like, well, this, this is how we build everything. This is how it all works. Mm. Uh, I deploy it and then 20 other people do it for me. Mm. Um, it's, it's super powerful to go back to that, that level of an organization and say, hey, we've been chatting to your users. Mm. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is, and this is what they've told us. There's a whole stack of things you didn't think about. Yeah, that's it. And I think there's serious power in combining the collaborative energy of those two aspects, which is the research focus, the research base, mm. um, as well as the service user experience, the feeling, the connectedness. So the warm and fuzzies and the frameworks and putting those together is super powerful. And, you know, as much as I make it sound like a bit of a fluffy process, the way I got to that um, map, that was the very first stage. The first stage was me sitting down, feeling it out, thinking about it based on my experience working in mental health, in person-centred practice, from psychology, from organisational um, psych perspective, bringing all of that together. Mm. Um, but as it was brought through its kind of iterative stages, I had a number of conversations. I brought further research into it. I'm lucky enough to work for an organisation that's had almost 30 years experience working in this particular space. But the launch of this program itself is it's something different to anything Australia's ever seen before. So this program is kind of the first of its kind. So in a lot of ways we're flying blind, but we also have all of this research behind us and all of the collaboration with the community. And you know, one of the, the lucky things about where I work is it's very much um, by the community for the community, which yeah. is one thing that very much sets us, sets us apart as well. Mm. Excellent. Mm. So you put all that research together, um, all of that domain knowledge that you have from um, your psych work and, and uh, your work in mental health over the years. What was, um, what was useful about the, the process itself, I guess, for you and, um, and for the people you had in mind when you were, were redesigning or creating this new service design? Did you, did you learn anything that you kind of weren't expecting to learn from the process itself as well as from the, from the actual service that you were, that you designed? Yeah, for sure. I, I learned so much in that process, actually, not only from designing that touch point journey, but every time I deliver that in a consulting way to any one of our members or have that discussion around the touch point journey, I learn something new. I find a better way to explain it. I find a better way to make it connect with someone else. Um, but I think what I learned most in that process was shifting your perspective to that of the service user entirely shifts your cognitive processes when you're creating something new mm. and you do become more invested and more emotionally connected in the outcome which can be a strength and a weakness um, but it really shifts you away from kind of the the frameworks and the systems uh, and onto the impact so it's kind of a, a reverse engineering approach which is what made it feel most natural so it was more mm. thinking about what is the end impact and how can we work our way backwards from there rather than solution-focused thinking where you think you already have the answer, but in fact that often blinds you to potential other answers that might be right. There could be a series of right answers. Mm. So I think by shifting into that perspective of A, being in the consumer or the service user's shoes, but also thinking about the final step or the final experience and working your way backwards from there, it makes it more real, more engaging, helps you able to explain it in a way that connects with other organisations. Mm. Uh, and I just think it really brings, I hate the word journey, but I can't think of another one. It really, <laughs> no, journey's, journey's on good. Journey. We, we love journey. Journey's, journey's great. It really helps you bring other people along on the journey. And yeah. that is how this stuff works. It is how it, it, it's how it happens. It's how it's rolled out in an effective and sustainable way otherwise it's done amongst a series of other things that feel like business as usual but it needs to connect with 
the human experience and that's something I've learned a lot along the way as well is finding a way to have a conversation that connects with someone's human lived experience regardless or not of whether they share that particular identity mm. is absolutely at the core of getting someone on board because everyone can connect with experiences of feeling on the outer, of feeling excluded, of feeling like they're not enough or they're different or they don't have access to equitable services or whatever it might be. Everyone's had an experience with that at some point in time. So as much as identities and identity politics is really important, when we strip that away and we bring it all down to the human experience, that's where I think we can really build services back up from because mm. it brings it down to what we've all experienced at some point in time, which makes it more relevant um, and it means that we're more engaged in rolling out the change, essentially. Yeah, and it is like it's a real... <clears throat> It's a real shift in thinking for a lot of services, in particular health services, mm. but it is a real shift in thinking because they're often so policy driven from a, from a, from a public level mm. and, and not just policy driven, but driven by available funding as well, Yes, where, where policy and funding kind of go hand in hand and create this really narrow service delivery mm. model. Um, but if you can make that shift, like you say, and, and think about what the outcome is that you want as opposed to the solution you're trying to provide. Yeah. Um, hopefully that means that you can provide um, you know, richer, more successful services within that narrow kind of band that you get mm. from the combination of, of essentially government policy, I guess, yeah. and, and, federal, and government funding, which is um, rightly or wrongly pretty much how nearly every health service runs. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And the majority of staff that are attracted to health services or community organisations or community services are often there because they're not there for the money, they're there for their heart, you know, they're there because that's the right thing to do, they're connected with that kind of work, so oftentimes that will mean that those staff are overworked and under-resourced, so mm. it can feel like quite a stretch. Uh, and often those organisations, as you've kind of alluded to, are really risk averse as well, with, with good reason in, in, course, to yeah. some degree, because there's a risk of losing funding and not being able to provide those services in the long run. But positive risk taking also has real power and, you know, huge social change doesn't happen without someone taking some element of a positive risk. So mm. I think it's important to keep that in mind, but also that it's not necessarily about reinventing the wheel. The services are already being provided to, to some degree. Uh, and the consumer or service user cohort is already there. Um, it's just about how we can service them better. So sometimes organisations think we don't have anyone that has that identity or this service wouldn't be of use to anyone, but if you don't have it in the beginning or you've never asked, how would you actually know? If you've never asked. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah, and it does, like, you know, there is that... Um, that iterative process that any service or organisation can go through where mm. they should be almost constantly asking themselves, right, have we checked with as many relevant people as we can? You know, are, we, we know that we can deliver a good service, but is it getting to everyone that it needs to get to? Mm, yeah. um, and if it's not, how do we fix it? Yes. Mm. And a key step in that is being open to criticism as well. That can be, it can be really difficult because you already feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the change, whether mm. it be a cultural change or a product or a service, whatever it is, it already feels like such a huge process and so overwhelming in so many ways that any little speed bump can feel like it's just throwing you off the road entirely. Yeah. But it's incredibly important to be open to the opinions and the experiences of those people who will be using the service 
and actually doing something with their voices as well. Um, I had an experience of this myself earlier on in the year. I've been involved in a quite a lengthy piece of uh, research um, to ex uh, to explore the experiences of a, a particular marginalised group of people. Mm -hmm. And that started out with essentially asking this group of people, what was their experience? Um, what are some of the barriers? Um, how would you like to make it better? So our very first step was the exploratory phase and we thought, right, we're on the right track, we're collaborating, we're bringing everyone in. And little did we know that we we, we made some errors in terms of how we, we asked that information. Some of the words and the language that we used didn't didn't sit right with everyone and initially when we received some of that feedback uh, it was a bit scary we kind of had to take a little bit of a step back and think have we done the right thing here mm -hmm. have we have we shaped it in the right way what could we be doing better and once we kind of stopped reflected took stock thought about our end goal and starting with the why and how yeah. do we actually achieve what we're wanting to achieve we went back to the service the potential service users and we said you know thank you for your feedback here's what we were thinking here's how we've changed it to reflect um, as much of the community as we can. Here's some ways where we have limitations and can't right now, but here are the plans for the future. Um, and as much as that, it, it wasn't overwhelming feedback from all of the service users, but it was definitely enough mm. uh, that we wanted to make sure their voices were heard, particularly given that we thought it was actually a real strength that people felt open and engaged enough and trusting enough to say, hang on a minute, you just really offended me. And I think that takes a lot of trust to do that. Definitely, we yes. need to pivot off that trust yeah. and keep that and harness that because this is the group of people that could entirely disengage. And then the results that we would have gotten to this research would have been skewed anyway because we would have had a group of people that were entirely happy with how we asked the questions. So what I learned from that was being open to criticism is super important stepping back and not taking it personally, even if you are personally invested in the research or the outcome, um, and understanding that it's all about bringing it back to the why. Mm. Mm. Well, it's something that, you know, like, certainly for me in the last 18 months, and um, it was an eye, something that was had been percolating in the back of my head for a long time, but I've, it's become a lot more obvious to me of late. Mm. Failure, failure is not really failure. Failure, failure is good. Mm. Um, making mistakes is great because it's an opportunity to, as you say, reflect and pivot and and find a better way to do something. Yeah. And, you know, it's un, an unfortunate fact of, of humanity that when we fail, um, we have a lot of feelings of guilt and failure and, and you shame. know, and shame. Mm. Yes, shame. Thank mm. you. That was actually what <laughs> I was looking for. We feel guilty and we feel shamed about ourselves. Mm. But really, you know, the, the opportunity to fail is, is pretty good it's a real opportunity to learn something mm. and it's a and it's a different kind of learning that you don't really get from all of the other different types of education that you can have totally mm. yeah and as someone who's a, a red hot raging perfectionist it's really <laughs> difficult for me to agree with what you're saying um but i agree you know there's there's a, a school of thought uh, that suggests that failing quickly is the best way yeah. to learn and to grow. Um, and that can be really difficult to do as an individual. And that's why it's important to have the backing behind you. So, you know, the leadership or the organisational support or ensuring that you've taken all of those, as many right steps as you can before you get there so that you know that you've gone through the process ethically is really important. Yeah. Um, but being able to acknowledge that failure is in fact an opportunity to learn and that's where growth mindset is so incredibly important. I remember when I first learned about growth mindset and fixed mindset doing my coaching accreditation that it just kind of blew my mind and mm. it really helped me reflect on the way that 
social change happens or any kind of change, whether it be in an organisation or a community group or even a, a relationship between two people, for example, when you take a growth mindset and see everything as an opportunity to learn and reflect and do something better, I think you'll just move through life in a more um, a, a more collaborative and reflective and um, more collaborative and reflective way, but also mm. have more of a positive impact on the people around you. Well, it comes back to what we were saying at the start, really, doesn't it? Where, you know, like you, if we need to find, we don't need to find, but you know, our, if our existence is about our interactions with people and mm. our interactions with organisations, failing fast and failing often. And learning from that and seeing it as an opportunity to learn and grow constantly, mm. um, you know, uh, will help provide you that satisfaction, I, I think at least anyway, yeah. um, in your work life, in your personal relationships, in any aspect of, of, of how you how you live your life, you know, being willing to learn from every in everything that you have around you, mm. um, I, I think, you know, makes for a much more exciting time. Oh, for sure. As an avid lifelong learner and big fat nerd, yeah. um, over here, I 100% <laughs> agree with that. And that I, I think also having compassion on yourself throughout that process, whether it be as an individual or a designer or a person in an organization or someone collaborating with those service users, mm. having compassion for yourself and understanding that when we feel shame at failure, that that's normal. Um, and Brene Brown does a lot of research in this, talking about shame and courage and how to have... Um, you know, a soft front and a strong back when we're dealing with challenging situations. Mm. Uh, and that can be a really powerful approach. But if we're not aware of that and we're not compassionate to that, that can often manifest into something else. So anger or frustration or shutting down the entire project or not wanting to engage anymore for fear of how that might reflect on you as an individual. Mm. So having that compassion on yourself and understanding that it can be a really positive step in the process can be really powerful. I have to tell you, I've not heard, was it Brene Brown? Or, Brene Brown. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know them. I've not heard of that before. So um, I might get some links off you later that I can put up yeah, with this episode absolutely. so that people yep. can, can do some further reading on that because that sounds uh, soft front and a strong back, huh? Yes, which yeah. is actually a, a Buddhist principle that she references in her latest book. But she does a TED Talk on the power of vulnerability and she does a lot of work in schools and community groups and with business leaders as well. Her whole, she's a professor and a researcher, her whole focus is on courage and vulnerability and how strength actually requires softness. And I think it's just a really kind of revolutionary approach. It sounds really airy-fairy, but when you read the principles and how it plays out, yeah. I think it's the core of authentic leadership, of providing the best kinds of services, of opening and listening and operating in a world that does feel so divisive at times in so many different areas right now. So I think it's a really powerful way to operate. Well, and it sounds it sounds like you know uh, again coming back to something that we've that we've been discussing that it's you know it's a, a methodology or a way of thinking that allows you it makes it easier for you to put someone else at the center of something or mm. put yourself at the center of something if that's what that's what's yeah. needed, but to as an easy way to um, to feel empathy and to build empathy with others, um, so that you can actually you know. Mm as much as possible, put other humans at the middle of things that you're doing for them. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Sarah, thank you for today. Oh, my pleasure. Um, we're pretty much done. I have one more question for you, though. Mm -hmm. um, gelato or soft serve? <laughs> oh, soft serve all the way. I can even list all my favourite flavours, if you like. Of soft serve? <laughs> I would say... 
Big dairy, creamy ice cream all the way. Yeah. yeah. I'm a fiend for it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> what about you, Aaron? Um, that's actually a really difficult question to answer because like most things, I have all of these like little filter criteria that determine which <laughs> one it is that I feel like at, at any given point in time. Uh-huh. I will say the majority of the time my answer is probably going to be gelato though. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But I think having a compassionate approach for yourself if you ever do feel like soft serve is okay as well. Oh, yes, most definitely. <laughs> most definitely, most definitely. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us, Sarah. Always a pleasure to chat to you. I learn something every time we get to spend some time together and I just love it. Alrighty, folks, that is it for this episode of Plastic Grass Square. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you find us. If you want to get in touch, if you've got ideas for guests or you just want to have a chat, shoot me an email to aaron at blueegg.com.au or hit us up on Twitter at blueegg.tweets. Always... Enjoy your company, folks. Thank you very much. See you soon.